Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. Hello, I'm Steve Holmes. Delighted to be involved in this podcast today with my colleague, Jane Scullion. Do you want to just quickly say hello, Jane? Hello. Nice to be with you again, Steve, and nice to be chatting about asthma today. So today we're going to talk about asthma diagnosis, and we know this is designed at our PCRS audience, so there's going to be some challenging thoughts and questions in our discussion. And I hope that during this time, if you find or know of evidence to refute what we've said, or you think that we should be doing something differently, then perhaps if you can send that in, it gives us a chance to update this um, recommendation at some point. But this today is going to be looking at how we make the diagnosis of asthma. So, Jane. Well, very clearly, we don't make it very well, do we, on, on a lot of occasions? And there's big concern about asthma. And, and I think over time, it, it's got more complicated. Yeah, I'm all struck by Sean Aaron's work, where about 15 years ago, he, he found that the diagnosis couldn't be proven in people with a diagnosis of asthma when they hadn't been on treatment and they were being tested with pheno challenge tests, um, reversibility spirometry in about 30% of the cases. And he did that same study again five or six years ago and found exactly the same. In Canada, it should be said. And the diagnosis, the misdiagnosis was identical between primary care and secondary care, which to me always says, always think about reevaluating that diagnosis, even if it's been made somewhere else, if the picture doesn't fit. I think that's a really important point that you raised, Steve, that, you know, we've always got to review all of our diagnosis for all the diseases we look after. And I think especially in asthma, it's really important because there's always that little bit of uncertainty in all of our minds of have we got the diagnosis right? And it's even more difficult in children. Yes, terribly challenging in children. And we certainly know in the under fives, a lot of or many children will have wheezing episodes in the first five or six years, which will resolve and will not go on to be a, a lifelong, long term condition like asthma. And, and probably in tertiary care, you would see quite a few unusual diagnoses coming through on people who've been assumed to be asthma with all sorts of tests being done. Yeah, I, I think that people, I mean, we always say common diseases occur commonly, and I think asthma is, you know, somebody short of breath. It, it tends to be very age biased. And we, and we know that even in elderly people, you can have a new diagnosis of asthma. And, and I think that people often get mislabeled, misclassified, and then you've got to unpick it. And people can build their life around having asthma. I, you know, I can't do this. I've got asthma. I can't do that. I've got asthma. And actually, if they haven't got asthma, it's really difficult to tell somebody. Yes, that's something I think a lot of us see both in primary, probably secondary and tertiary care too. The, the, the person whose asthma is controlling their life and what they're able to do. And if that is disrupted, it makes it very difficult for them to be challenged. In a way, sometimes they don't want to have a cure because they gain from having the disease, which is true in many long-term conditions as well. Yeah, so the psychological aspects of it as well as the physiological. So we've got loads of 
asked my guidance, um, BTS sign, got nice, we've got Gina. That shows that even as experts, there is a difference in how they think we should treat and diagnose asthma. Which is your go-to? Well, I thought that I probably ought to have the three badges. But I do see a lot of people who love one badge only and say, we must do it one way. We must do it the nice way, or we must do it the BTS sign way, or we've got to follow Gina. And I think probably as clinicians, the important thing there is we've got to use the evidence base that we're aware of and fit that into our clinical experience, what is available to us, and also what our patient wants from the situation. So we need to be both aspirational and pragmatic by combining some of the guidance. Yes, and and I I was always struck by um, the document, the NICE guidance, Andrew Menzies-Gow and his co-lead on the guidance, published in the BMJ a month after the NICE guidance was produced, saying, please follow the BTS sign guidance until you have the systems and testing in place to be able to follow NICE. So, and I thought that was a very important comment that Andrew made at that point. And to be fair to him, he's been beavering away behind the scenes on investigation hubs, actually getting the capability so we can start doing more objective tests to try and diagnose asthma. I I guess in specialist care, how often are you doing these objective tests and how often are you just going on clinical hunches? I think it's a combination. I think it's always difficult because we have um, we have sort of several grades of asthma, if you like. So we have the difficult to treat asthma, which gets thoroughly investigated, lots of um, questionnaires, lots of looking at, at lifestyle and everything else. And then we also get people with asthma that are treated in the more general respiratory clinics who probably the diagnosis isn't questioned in as much detail. And often, you know, that that difficult asthma can be mild or it can be a more severe illness. And and I think that goes for all of them. So I I think, you know, anyone admitted to hospital with a diagnosis of asthma, we should really look at whether that diagnosis is correct rather than it just going down into the notes and it's an asthma exacerbation or a problem with the asthma. And, And that's tricky, isn't it? And it's tricky in primary care as well. When the person's treated and on an inhaler and at work, they don't often want to stop their treatment to see whether they get more variability and whether they start to get all their symptoms back in because they want to keep working. And so there's often a collusion, I think, in all areas where we say, well, if it seems to be working, let's keep you on that. Have you got any tricks to get around that? I think it's that interaction that you have with the actual person who's got asthma trying to or hasn't got asthma I guess as well trying to understand where they're at because the worst thing we can do is keep ramping up the treatments because there's still some symptoms so it's trying to think around you know what's going on is it asthma and I'm having that honest conversation of it looks like asthma but are we sure and I think it's important to say that Sean Aaron's work which is very widely quoted about the third not having asthma. The selection process was asking people if they would like to be checked to see if they really do have asthma or not, which means a lot of people would say, no, I know I've got asthma. Why would I bother to be checked? And so the numbers will be slightly skewed on that. But yes, I agree. It's it's that really rethinking that process through and working with our patients to get the answers. I'm used to using the BTS sign much more in practice the the pragmatic 
if it sounds like asthma, I can give it a trial of treatment. I look for objective signs of reversibility and try and document those well. And if I make the diagnosis, put a nice little summary as to why it's been made at that point. And I think probably that's one of the tips I've learned is that summary, I've made the diagnosis because the patient had variable symptoms, nocturnal symptoms. I've got evidence of a peak flow variation. I've got evidence of a pheno of 80 on no treatment and evidence of a good response to inhaled corticosteroid treatment and consistent improvement since would be the sort of comment that would say, therefore I make the diagnosis of asthma so that someone can go back and look as to why it was made. But I don't see that often. Yeah, I think you're, I think that summary is really good in, in, in a lot of ways of you've, you've combined the pragmatic approach, the patient focused approach in terms of symptoms, but also backing it up with some sort of evidence of um, it really does look like this. It does look like asthma. I think too often it, it's just made on the basis of somebody short of breath, they're a certain age, try an inhaler. So, so thinking about the investigation hubs, do you think that's going to be a great bonus as we move forward? I, I call them investigation rather than diagnostic because I think they're probably separate. An investigation is somewhere you can get a test done quickly and the report sent back for a clinician to make the diagnosis. A diagnostic hub is somewhere where you can have the test done and have an expert clinician there to help to provide the diagnosis as well. Yeah, that was my cynical side. And I'm glad you split it into the investigation hub because investigations are only as good as the person who does it. It's actually the interpretation of the investigation that's important. Um, I don't know where we're going to get all the people from to work in these investigation hubs. Well, there's quite a lot of vacancies in primary care. And I suspect there might be in secondary care, but I think some of those might be lured into it. So we might have even more people wanting to do that than doing the, the coal face work. If it's a benefit, I think I think anything like this that you set up needs to be have a baseline. It needs to be evaluated. You know, need to know that it's both effective and cost effective as well. And I think my colleagues certainly GP colleagues would say, if I can get a test done rapidly that is quality assured and I get the a good um, report back in a timely fashion, then that enables me to make diagnoses where I can and feel comfortable or refer on where I feel less comfortable. If it's going to be waiting eight months to get a test where the report comes back another month later and I can't understand what the report says, pointless. Yeah. I really like the trials of treatment. I think the investigations help. I don't think they're everything. I think that, you know, we know asthma is a variable condition. If somebody's coming to you when their asthma isn't triggering at that time or they're not symptomatic, it tells you nothing because people with asthma are not poorly on a day-to-day basis, by and large. And I think that's another important tip, isn't it, is when you do a test, document what symptoms the patient has around the time of that test. If they have lots of symptoms that you think might just be asthma, but their spirometry is entirely normal, that pushes you one way. If they say, I've had some treatment for my asthma recently, I'm absolutely perfect again now, and their spirometry and pheno is entirely normal, and they're on their treatment, you know how to interpret it much better rather than just looking back five years later to test where you can't work out when or why it was done. Yeah. So that old diagnosis often needs challenging and we need to rethink. Yeah. 
well, that's a bit of work to be done. <laughs> I've got plenty of time for that. So, um, hmm. and none of us want a lot of extra work at the moment. So this must be something we're going to have to plan to do over a period of time. But I think at least we're moving on the way to be able to get more tests to help to confirm the diagnosis rather than um, a much more flexible, perhaps less informed at times, rapid decision that can have an impact on a patient for many years and put them into a role that, that they perhaps don't benefit from. And I think we always have to be positive as, as we end with these things. And in asthma care, by and large, we get it right for an awful lot of people and we make a huge impact on their quality of life and their ability to lead a normal life, whatever a normal life is these days. Yeah. And I, and I guess the other thing is our, our colleague Vinci McGovern often says, if it's asthma, it tends to respond to asthma treatment. And if it doesn't respond to asthma treatment, it probably isn't asthma. And I think that's a really important memory for me is saying, actually, we have a lot of people who think they've got asthma, but never get better with the treatments we give them. If we ignore other causes for breathlessness, we're dis doing a disservice to our patients. Absolutely. So peak flow meters, are they the new fashionable thing? They've been in fashion, out of fashion, here, there, everywhere else. Is this, is this the 22 um, fashion that we're going to be expecting? The new black dress, Jane? Yeah, so, so maybe a shade of grey, if you like. Um, I, I think that peak flow meters have a place. I think we've turned more to them because we haven't had access to spirometry, but we need to take them at face value. It needs to be a really good technique that the person's got. It's about baseline rather than what you're seeing at that moment. You know, what was, what was their original baseline like and, and does it improve with treatment? So I think we do go to them. I don't think people use them on a regular basis unless they're the sort of people that uh, bring you their chart in where they're doing it twice a day, all in a nice red and black pen or on their computer or something. And I worry more about those people and their diagnosis than I do people who admit that they do it occasionally. So, um, and I think it's good for things like the occupational asthma. So I, I, I think we're back in favour with the peak flow at the moment. It's cheap, it's cheerful, and if used correctly, it's actually useful. I agree with that. I think you were hinting that some people may be more obsessional than others. <laughs> and there is a spectrum across both clinicians and patients on that. And, and I think the other thing is, Yes, it is cheap and cheerful. I, I guess my word of warning is if they can't do the test in the surgery, they certainly can't at home. And one of the biggest things that I find observing people who come in with their diaries doing a peak flow is their effort is not always full on each time, in which case that variability is because of their variable effort rather than variable lung disease. Yes, and you, and, you, and you have to think about, you know, a lot of the asthma plans are based on, you know, 75% of your best, 50% of your best. I think people base their asthma problems on their symptoms. And if you have a slight problem with numbers, which, which I do, I can never work out what 75% of something is or 50%, well, I can do 50% because it's just half, but, you know, those percentages don't ring with me. So while it works for some people, it doesn't work for everybody. And if your mathematical mind doesn't pull this together, mine certainly won't. I find very few patients who, who actually monitor their symptoms by the peak flow. It may be perhaps something that a few patients that you'll see in tertiary care are, but most of the people that I'm seeing in primary care 
monitor their asthma by their symptoms, not by doing a peat flow. Totally agree. So are there any other areas we need to be talking about with asthma? Do you think we'll get a blood test that will work? We've got pheno. We can measure eosinophils. None of, none of those are accurate on their own. They've all got to be put into that picture. And as um, I, I think it was Dermot talks about trying to uh, develop a jigsaw of pieces that fit together so you can see a clear picture of asthma coming through. I, I guess it is that thought of, is there anything on the horizon that's going to really revolutionise what we do at the moment? My silence would seem to think not that we, we do a lot of what we've always done and, and and add things into it but you may know more about that than me steve i'm i'm not hearing anything that's really challenging the way we're thinking at the moment so let's be a little bit more potentially hopeful we'll see what sort of mood you're in today what do you think about if sean aaron did the study in the uk in about another five years would we be getting that diagnosis more accurately in five years time than perhaps the Canadians were five years ago and 15 years ago? I would hope so, but I probably think we'll probably not to a large degree. And, and maybe a lot of that is because in the last two years, we have had a lot of people diagnosed or not diagnosed that we've got to unpick and to sort out. So it's going to take a while to play catch up with all the ones that have had a telephone diagnosis and been given treatment that they think works. And it's really sad to me that we don't invest in the research in this area to really nail down our best options for doing this. This is an ideal opportunity for research departments to get on board now and find out really what is the best way to diagnose asthma for the long term and how we can unpick that in a more clinical way. But I, but I guess the methodology is very complex. And, and I think, you know, that there's some, the, the thing that I think is helpful going forward is that there's not one asthma. There are different phenotypes of asthma, different traits, if you like. And it's all about that treatable traits, which is quite trendy at the moment, because, you know, you can have non-eosinophilic asthma. So your eosinophils are not going to tell you anything. You can have asthma linked to obesity. You can have late onset asthma, early onset asthma. So, so I think we're starting to especially in the, in the science unpick the fact that all these people with asthma or twitchy airways or whatever we want to call it are not all the same don't all get treated the same and don't always respond to the same diagnostic pathways which is a really fascinating thought if we think about that the diagnosis of asthma in that early literature around the early 1800s talked about an overarching condition but quite different people in that that we're now at the same phase but we're still lumping lots of people together with a diagnosis of asthma rather than asthma caused by or all the other parts linked in with that what a thought for the future thank you so much jane for stimulating some thinking and hopefully that's helped everybody to have a little think about how they're making the diagnosis of asthma in their unit in their team and in their area and thank you, Steve. Interesting as always. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe for future podcasts. Goodbye.